Greetings in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. Appreciated all the input given so far in the service. It was uh, encouraging and inspiring. So thank you. Thank you, each one. Also want to welcome all of you, especially you as guests. Thank you for being with us and blessing us with your presence. And maybe before we go into the message, we could have a moment of prayer. Stand with me if you can and pray together. Heavenly Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus, we come to you. We are gathered here in Jesus' name, thanking you again, Father, for your faithfulness to us, for your mercy and grace that is multiplied to us. Thank you for each one who is present. Bless and pour out your spirit upon us as we are assembled here. Pray that uh, your spirit would be our helper today, whether we are teaching or whether we are listening, we recognize the need of your spirit to enable us. Father, give something for each person here today and for those who may be listening in. We pray that there could be something shared that is of value, something that will benefit their never-dying souls. Father, I ask for help to organize and to share the things that are upon my heart. Ask for your spirit. Ask, Father, that um, I could share in a way that is easy to understand and that uh, your truth could be understood by us. Father, probably not new, but reminders of uh, truth, Lord. Thank you. And again, Father, thank you for this assembly. Thank you for the freedom we have to worship, to gather unhindered. Thank you, Lord. Pour out your spirit upon us this hour, Father, we ask in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. All right, as some of you will remember, it's been several weeks actually since I had a morning message here, but uh, the message was, uh, last message I had was uh, inspired from the book of Job, and this one this morning is as well. Um, So Job, the book of Job is located somewhere near the middle of the Old Testament, probably not quite the middle, but in if you uh, read through a chronological Bible, it shows up a whole lot earlier in the in the uh, reference of scripture. and uh, that's 
what I've been doing this starting uh, started in January uh, reading slash listening through the Bible and uh, in a chronological format and uh, didn't get real far until I was in the book of Job and uh, several uh, messages were inspired in my heart as I uh, read through that. Um, the last message, we focused a little bit on, uh, well, the title of the last message was, uh, Why Am I Discouraged? Um, and we focused a little bit uh, on uh, Job's discouragement that he faced in uh, his very difficult experiences and uh, talked a bit about discouragement and why discouragement at times is a part of our experience. Today I'd like to look at this same uh, context pretty well of Scripture, but we're going to look at something other than the Job and his discouragement. Uh, we're going to look a bit, uh, at least the springboard for our, our message is going to be looking a bit at uh, the response of Job's friends to his situation. I titled today's message, Is My Life a Legacy of Faith? And uh, probably the, the first part of the message, you won't quite connect the dots, but uh, partway through I think we'll start connecting them to the title. Uh, Is My Life a Legacy of Faith? Maybe we should just think about the word legacy a little bit. A legacy is something that has been handed down from an ancestor. So, uh, basically the question is, uh, the title is asking this question, is my life handing down to others a testimony of faith, a demonstration of faith in God? Is my life doing that? So, just a refresher on Job and uh, his uh, experiences. We'll skim a little bit through a few things here in the book of Job, starting in chapter 1. In Job chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, we see uh, the the, Job. Discourse that happens between God and Satan. Uh, so we'll read a couple of verses there. Beginning in verse 6 of chapter 1. Now there was in the day, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Now, I'm just going to tell you right off, I'm not sure what that means, that uh, the sons of God came to present themselves to the Lord. There are some things in Scripture that we read, and we don't exactly know what what actually happened there. And it's not really that important that we know. Uh, But it does, uh, we do know that the the devil was among the, the, the group. And the the next verse, And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? 
Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, and one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. The, uh, uh, I'll continue reading. There came a, me- uh, the, and there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house, and there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I am only am escaped alone to tell thee. And when he, had, when he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God is fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep. And the servants and consumed them, and I only am escaped to tell thee. And while he was yet speaking, there came also another, and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands, and fell upon the camels, and carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I uh, am escaped alone to tell thee. And while he was yet speaking, there came also another, and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in thy eldest brother's house, and behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness, and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men. It says there, it actually really means the young people, and they are dead. Job had seven sons and three daughters, was it? He had three daughters, yeah, seven sons and three daughters. And they all died in that calamity. Then Job arose, rent his mantle, shaved his head, fell down upon the ground and worshipped, and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb. Naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. <clears throat> so Satan had was given opportunity to afflict Job. And he did just exactly what he had opportunity to do. And we see Job's response. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly or attributed folly to God. Amazing man. Well, chapter 2 goes on with the account. There was again a day when the sons of God came to present themselves to the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself for the Lord. The Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. The Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in all the earth, 
a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and excludeth evil, and still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. And he took him a potsherd to scrape himself with all and sat down among the ashes. Then his wife, uh, then saith his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speak. What? Shall we not receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. And then verse 11 says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, they came every one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shulhite, uh, Zophar the Naamite, Namathite, for they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. So these three friends came. Um, well, I'll just read the last two verses yet. When they had lifted up their eyes afar and knew him not, they lifted up their voice and wept, and they rent everyone his mantle and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. So they sat down upon the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. Well, so there we have um, the history of uh, what Job encountered and and uh, a glimpse into the heavenlies over the whole thing that took place. And we have the three friends coming and uh, sitting there for a whole week, not saying a word. They were so astounded, I guess, by the extreme uh, suffering that Job was experiencing. So now, we would like to look just a bit at some of what Job's friends say to him. And uh, we can't uh, read everything. Uh, But... uh, We'd like to just uh, go through this uh, book and lift out a few small sections of Scripture where they uh, uh, address Job. And we're not going to look at any of Job's responses. The first, uh, uh, the first one to speak was Eliphaz. Uh, we find him speaking in chapter 4. Um, And I'm going to read the first seven verses. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If we essay to commune with thee, wilt thou be grieved? But who can withhold himself from speaking? Behold, thou hast instructed many, and thou hast strengthened the weak hands. Thy words have have upholden him that was falling, and thou hast strengthened the feeble knees. But now it is come upon thee, and thou faintest, it toucheth thee, and thou art troubled. Is not this thy fear, 
thy confidence, thy hope, and the uprightness of thy ways. Remember, I pray thee, who, or, or basically what he's saying is, think about this. Who ever perished being innocent? And where were the righteous cut off? Basically, what uh, Eliphaz is saying there, now now think reasonably, Job. Did ever a righteous man uh, suffer, uh, get cut off? Did, uh, did ever uh, innocent people perish? Uh, so, basically, he is implying to Job that you're not as innocent as you think you are. <laughs> uh, just think through this, Job. Uh, you'll find out as we go on through that they get even stronger. Uh, in their reproof of Job. In chapter 8, verse 1 to 6, we have Bildad. Uh, his uh, first uh, speaking into the situation. Then answered Bildad the Shuhite and said, How long wilt thou speak these things? How long shall the words of thy mouth be like a strong wind? Doth God pervert judgment and doth the Almighty pervert justice? If thy children sinned against him, and, ha- and he have cast them away for their transgression, if thou wouldst seek unto God betimes, and make thy supplication to the Almighty, if thou wert pure and upright, surely now he would awake for thee, and make the habitation of thy righteousness prosper. See, again, the implications there uh, is saying... Uh, he mentions about his children and uh, mentions the fact that uh, his children brings them into the perspective. And he says, if, if, uh, if thou wert pure and upright, surely now he would awake for thee. So, again, he's implying that, Job, you're, there's a problem. You're not who you think you are. If you were pure, if you were an upright man, God would come to your defense, is basically what, what uh, he's saying there. Uh, so then let's go on to chapter 11, verse 1 to 6. We have Zophar, the Nehemite. He says, Should not the multitude of words be answered? Shall a man full of talk be justified? Should thy lies make men hold their peace? And when thou mockest, shall no man make thee ashamed? For thou hast said, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in thine eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips against thee, and that he would show thee the secrets of wisdom, that they are double to that which is. Know therefore that God exacteth of thee less than thy iniquity deserveth. Now, he got even more frank. God has, you know, they sat there for seven days, couldn't talk because of the misery, and now he is saying that you are you, what you are suffering is actually less than what you deserve. That's what he's telling Job. <clears throat> Chapter 15, verse 1 to 6. Eliphaz, the Temanite, the first one again. Should a wise man utter vain knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he reason with unprofitable talk or with speeches wherewith he can do no good? Yea, thou castest off fear and restrainest prayer before God. For thy mouth uttereth thine iniquity, and thou choosest the tongue of the crafty. Thine own mouth condemneth thee, and not I. Yea, 
thine own lips testify against thee. And so there we have it again. You know, it's fairly obvious they, they're rebuking Job, your, uh, your uh, own mouth is condemning you, your, uh, your mouth uttereth their own iniquity. Uh, yeah. Oh, let's see. And one of the things that we're, we're just reading little bits here. Uh, if you review what they, the, the content of what they shared with Job, they often talked about the wicked man and how the results and the uh, reaping and the benefit uh, the, that happens to the wicked man. And they don't always come right out and say, you're the man, like they did in some of these verses we read. But all the while, they're implying that there is a serious problem here, Job. There is a reason this has happened to you. Sit up and pay attention, Job. Are you blind? Are you a fool? That's the way they're coming to him. <laughs> that's, uh, that's the gist of, of uh, the way they uh, are approaching him. Chapter 18, verse 21 uh, Gives a, it's got, it's the end of uh, of a discourse by uh, Bildad, and he says, "Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked, and this is the place of him that knoweth not God." So he's just got done with a whole discourse of what uh, is the results of wicked men, and uh, basically they're implying to Job that you are you're the man, you're the wicked man. Uh, chapter 20, verse 27 to 29. Again, the same idea. They talk a lot about the wicked man. And then here he finishes up. The, the heavens shall reveal his iniquity and the earth shall rise up against him. The increase of his house shall depart and his goods shall flow away in the day of his wrath. This is the portion of a wicked man from God and the heritage appointed unto him by God. Um, yeah. And by, by what they're, by the way they're posturing themselves is it's all coming as a rebuke to Job saying, you, you're, you're not facing reality, Job. There's a problem here in your life. Uh, Job 22 verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Can a man be profitable unto God as he is, as he that is wise may be profitable unto himself? Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that thou art righteous, or is it gain to him that thou makest thy way perfect? Will he reprove thee for, for fear of thee? Will he enter with thee into judgment? Is not thy wickedness great? And thine iniquities infinite, infinite. For thou hast taken a pledge from thy brother for naught, and stripped the naked of their clothing. Thou hast not given water to the weary to drink. Thou hast withholden bread from the hungry. But as for the mighty man, he had the earth, and the honorable man dwelt in it. Thou hast sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless have been been broken. Therefore, snares are round about thee, and sudden fear troubleth thee, or darkness that thou canst not see, and abundance of waters 
cover thee. And we'll stop there again. Now, this gentleman got quite pointed. Uh, you've taken uh, a pledge from thy brother for naught. You've stripped the naked of their clothing. You've not given water to the weary. You've withholden bread from the hungry. You've sent widows away empty. and You've broken the arms of the fatherless. Yeah, Job, you did all these things. <laughs> it's good we have the final verdict given by God. In Job 42, jumping to the back of the book. And if, for those of you who were here a few weeks ago, in the beginning of Job Chapter 42, uh, so we had, uh, we had these three friends and then we had the fourth individual that spoke up, uh, and then we had God that spoke to Job at, toward the end of the book. And, uh, and we see here that Job, um, responds in chapter 42 to God. And uh, God had asked Job several questions, and Job responds by quoting the, uh, repeating the question and then giving his response. In chapter 42, verse 3, uh, Job repeats the question God had asked him just a little earlier in the book. He says, Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? And here's Job's response. Therefore have I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me which I knew not. And then he gives, uh, repeats another question. Here I beseech thee and I will speak. I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. That was God's question. And Job's response uh, is, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye hath seen thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. So in the midst of that situation, in the midst of discouragement, Job acknowledges that he spoke out of turn. He spoke uh, things that he shouldn't have said. Um, He acknowledges that and he repents of it. Now, let's get uh, uh, get God's perspective on Job's friends. And continues here in verse 7. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. Therefore, take unto you seven bullocks, seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For him I will will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly, in that ye have not spoken of me the thing which is right like my servant Job. <clears throat> so Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bill had the Shuhite, and so far the Namathite, went and did according as the Lord commanded them, and the Lord also accepted Job, and the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. All right, that was a bit of a lengthy... Uh, Discourse there, uh, even though we just got little pieces of it. Um, so we see, uh, we see the, 
We got a glimpse into this situation. We have Job's three friends and how they responded to Job. We have the end of the story and how God gives the final analysis of what happened. Uh, So we'd like to take that now and think a bit about uh, something that is actually really common to human beings. Um, what is our response when we see someone suffering severe trial or affliction? What is our response? We see the response of Job, Job's three friends, You know, it's not uncommon for human beings to, to, to uh, think and to analyze on the critical side of things and to either think or even shell out their criticism of the individuals who are suffering, sometimes suffering quite severely. It's just the, it's, it's kind of the mindset of human beings. You know, there's a, there's a scripture in John chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, Gospel of John. And Jesus passed, passed by. He saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Is that the same framework of thought? Okay. There's a suffering individual here. Who's responsible? Who's sinned? Who's God uh, judging? Who's God uh, uh, meeting out justice to for their sin? Who sinned? Is that... Is that how we process life when someone faces a setback, a difficulty, a trial? Are our first thoughts, oh, what for sin did they commit? What for account is God leveling with them? Are our first thoughts critical thoughts? And we conclude that something must be wrong in their lives if God allowed such a difficult experience into their lives. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a very common way for human beings to respond. I think we all, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit it. It's very common for us to to look on someone and judge critically the things that they may be experiencing, judge critically about it. You know, is it possible that we are when we do that, is it possible that we're actually missing something? That we're actually not seeing something right? 
Did Job's three friends miss something? Is there something that they weren't seeing right? How about the disciples? When they asked Jesus that question, was there something that they were not seeing correctly? I didn't read the Jesus' response to their question. <clears throat> Probably most of you know it. What if there is something actually very different going on in the situation than what we are thinking? You know, it was that way with Job. These three individuals had evaluated the situation and had concluded what they thought was going on. And, but something totally different was actually going on from what their evaluation was. The same is true with the disciples of Jesus in that situation where they looked in the blind man and said, Oh, Jesus, who sinned? Who sinned? In the next verse, Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Now, that's, a, that's something to altogether different. Altogether different scope of thought. Altogether different uh, changes the whole dynamics of things. <clears throat> so, let's consider another perspective that perhaps we should think about when we see someone facing some fairly difficult experiences in their lives. And it doesn't just have to be real difficult experiences, but maybe that's where these kind of things show up a little more. Jesus Jesus said that uh, this situation, there's no sin involved, but the, the situation is here bec for the purpose of God's, the works of God, an opportunity for the works of God to be manifested, to be made clear. <clears throat> Do you suppose that that is... Uh, Do you suppose that that could be another way of looking at... Uh, severe trials in people's lives, rather than looking at them with an eye of criticism and judgment, could it be, could another way to be looking at it is to actually look at it from a perspective and ask the question, I wonder what God's wanting to do in this situation. I wonder what God has in mind. I wonder who he's trying to uh, reach what for testimony he's trying to emanate forth in this situation. You know, God used a set of parents and a child, allowed the difficulty of blindness, parents having a child who's blind a child who is needing to live with blindness, God allowed that situation 
allowed those parents to go through that experience and those years with that child. Simply for the purpose of making his works manifest. So there was a need. God wanted to make his works manifest. And so, do you think God looked for someone who had enough of faith to trust him in a difficult situation? A set of parents who he knew they wouldn't become totally discouraged when they discovered they have a child who's born blind. Maybe God was looking for someone who would have faith in that situation and that he could then use that situation. God, in a sense, entrusted them, those parents, he entrusted them with a, a trial to bear in order that his works could be made manifest. So maybe instead of looking at that situation and wondering what they did wrong, maybe we ought to look at ourselves and say, why couldn't God find enough of faith in me to choose me for that trial? So God, in looking for an opportunity to manifest his works, he chose them. He passed me by. And he chose them. Instead of thinking critical thoughts about that difficulty, maybe we should be thinking critical thoughts about ourselves. Who? When God had something beyond the mundane, beyond the normal everyday, something big, He chose them. Whoa. Hmm. That puts it in a different perspective, doesn't it? You know, none of us, none of us like difficulties, especially uh, difficulties that have lifelong effects. And there are those. As I was as I was thinking about this, I, I, I thought I, I, I thought about some of the difficult situations that. Uh, have affected the Anabaptist community in the last number of years. I'm going to refer to just a few. Think about the the situation with the Nickel Mines school shooting. A very difficult, traumatic situation. No one would have chosen to be a part of it. I heard the testimony of one of the uh, parents who have a 
severely handicapped child as a result of that Nickel Mines school shooting. Heard this testimony of the dad this summer at the care center uh, fundraiser. And the the difficulty um, of bearing that situation and the results of the situation and bearing it in faith. Very difficult. Extremely difficult. More than any of us can imagine. And yet, in that situation, the peoples of the world were made aware that there are people that still live on the earth, that are living on the earth, who forgive. The peoples of the world were made aware that there are people who still choose to forgive. The testimony of the Amish community forgiving the the shooter and the family and ministering to them went across the world. Where else could God find a people? upon whom he could put such a difficult experience and his name be magnified in it. You know, there are probably those in the world who heard that testimony of forgiveness and it pricked their hearts concerning a situation in their lives and they likely chose to forgive someone in their life. It probably happened. There were probably those who heard that testimony of forgiveness and were pricked in their hearts at the need to forgive someone in their life And they chose not to. But the purpose of God is still accomplished. God wants that testimony to go forth in the earth. And those who chose not to forgive. This situation, they heard about it. They heard about the people who choose to forgive. They know that it's a, it's a right thing for human beings to do. And they chose not to forgive. That testimony will stand against them in judgment. And yes, the, the trial that is ongoing for those 
who were close to the situation. Did the, did the Amish community pass on a legacy of faith? Coming back to our title, Passing on a Legacy of Faith. <clears throat> I think they did. In that situation. <clears throat> I'd like to think a little bit about the Haiti hostage situation that was fairly recent here. You know, in that situation, that situation revealed differences in the level of faith in the Anabaptist community. It did, without a doubt. And we know, you know, probably any of us here, we don't know that much of the uh, inside testimony of things, uh, but we do know enough to know that... uh, there were very varied responses to the situation and very varied responses on how it should be handled in the Anabaptist community. The situation revealed quite a diversity of levels of, I'm going to call it, faith. I don't, I want to be careful not to criticize anyone because How would I have responded if I would have been right in the heat of it, needing to make decisions about it? If you heard Barry Grant's testimony about the situation, you know that he was under an incredible amount of pressure from the Anabaptist community on a multitude of fronts on what is the right way to respond to this situation. <clears throat> and you know, he gives it in his testimony, he gives little glimpses into what the responses were, some of the responses were, and uh, the fact that not all of those responses were what he felt was actually the appropriate response. But there was a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure. I don't know if it's true or not. Rumor would have it that there the you know they wanted a million per person, which would calculate to 17 million. Rumor would have it that the funds were actually available by willing donors. I don't know if that's true. I have no idea. I'm just saying that perspective at least was out there. Uh, There were... There were partial payments made. There were alternate... uh, uh, Alternative... uh, Programs or, or responses suggested, such as a whole host of food boxes and things like that. <clears throat> Did the Anabaptist community pass on a legacy of faith in that situation? 
You know, I'm thankful that even in the midst of the faltering of the Anabaptist community, in knowing and understanding what is the right response, even in the midst of that faltering, God showed himself strong on their behalf, on his behalf, on his behalf, God himself. Did you and I personally pass on a legacy of faith relating to that situation? You know, that wasn't just about 17 people and their families and an organization called Christian Aid Ministries. That was about all of us. We're part of the Anabaptist community. There are people. I trust that that was your burden in its day. And that your prayers were surrounding it. And that you were carrying it in your heart. And that your faith in God was unwavering. You know, unfortunately, and I don't get much of it, but I know it's out there. There's a good bit of criticism that surrounds that whole situation from various perspectives and various fronts. Criticism of the people, criticism of the organization, criticism, yeah, a lot of it. I'd like to lift our sights. You know, when we don't understand, it's better to not say anything than to criticize. In fact, it's almost a shame how much criticism comes out of the Anabaptist community over a situation like that. Where's our faith? Where's our belief that God has something he wants to do? And when it came to an excruciating task and God needed someone strong in faith to come through, he didn't choose any of us. He chose them. Passed us by. You know, there's a scripture there in Matthew chapter 18, beginning of the chapter. You can turn there if you wish. Matthew 18. Scripture. 
put the wrong reference down. I wonder if it was Luke. Yes, it's Luke. So we have the uh, this uh, lesson here on prayer in uh, Luke 18, verse 1. He says, And he spake a parable unto them to this end, for this purpose, that men ought always to pray, and not to faint. <clears throat> Saying, there was, a, there was in a city a, a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward, he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard men, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith, and shall not God avenge his own elect which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? And that's a, that's a question that I was thinking about as I was uh, uh, preparing this message you know, what is Jesus actually asking there? He says, uh, when the Son of Man cometh, will he find faith on the earth? Is he asking whether uh, there's going to be people that still believe in him? That still believe he's the Messiah, that he still believe he's the Son of God? Well, that's probably some of what he is asking, but I wonder if he isn't asking more than that. Will there still be people of faith? Through whom he, who he can use to demonstrate his works. People that will be able to go through difficult situations in order that the works of God may be made manifest. It says here, though he bear long with them. You know, uh, God promises to be uh, with us. He promises actually to answer us. But like this scripture says, though he bear long with them, sometimes that answer doesn't come as soon as we would wish. Sometimes that answer comes even a lot further down the road than we would wish. But will he find faith? Will we be people of faith even while we are waiting for the answer? Will he find faith on the earth? Will he find people through whom he can work to manifest his works to a, a dying, lost and dying world about us? <clears throat> Will we pass on a legacy of faith? You know, the... Um, and again, I, I come back to the the thought of Job and his three friends and how they assessed the situation. And um, and the call to us to be careful how we assess 
life situations. That we would, that we would in fact uh, be people of faith, and that is where that is where I'm trying to drive our guide our thoughts to. That we would be people of faith. That uh, in the difficulties of life and the complexities and, and, and tough situations that we would not join the criticizing band. Uh, be very, uh, I mean, there's times when truth needs to be spoken. And we all know that. But to not join the criticizing band, but to be people of faith and to be people of faith in God and to recognize God's sovereignty and work in life and in people's situations and in in uh, uh, demonstrating himself to a lost and dying world and using people like you and I and others to do it. And at times, allowing situations that are much less than desirable that the works of God might be made manifest. I'd like to refer to one more situation. In some ways, I was trying to understand how I can tie these all together or, or, or each situation is different and it, and it, uh, the applications are different, I guess. I'd like to, uh, just refer briefly to another situation that has been very difficult for those who are close to it. And probably a situation that has likely also created significant critical thinking and probably even critical conversations. Not saying that that was the case here, but I'd like us to, again. I'd like us like to lead us to thinking a bit more from a faith perspective in God and His um, sovereignty and His work. <clears throat> And that's the situation that happened recently with with uh, Susanna Kaufman's passing. Maybe there's some here that don't even know about the situation. I don't know. If you don't, that's okay. Um, You probably won't understand everything I'm saying if you aren't familiar with it. You know, not much is known of her final few hours. So people are left to speculate. I suspect, based on the situation, that there's been a lot of negative speculation. And probably some fairly negative conclusions. I'm going to suppose that you would agree with that uh, that uh, summary and if so if that's the case I'm going to ask this question 
is it okay for me to speculate just a little bit on the faith side this morning? Am I allowed to do that? To speculate just a little bit on the faith side rather than on the critical side, on the criticism side. Like I said, her last few hours, we know basically nothing. People know very little about. You know, most of us know that her life was laced with some moral failures. Most of us know that. She struggled to walk with God in faith because of her marred history. Struggled to walk with God. Those who were close to her caught those struggles. Deep heart struggles of accepting the forgiveness for sin and uh, the freedom to walk in newness of life. Struggled. Her testimony of repentance and walking in faith was clear from around the end of December until her life ebbed out. Or until she disappeared off of our of the radar. Her repentance was clear. Her testimony of walking with God and pressing into God was clear up to the very day that she disappeared. Not a great long period of uh, time, but the testimony was clear. Like I said, she had various failures in morality in her history. And I think it is probably obvious to most of us that her last test in life was likely a test of her morality. Do you suppose, well, let me say this. Suppose she died defending the area She had failed at so many times before. Just suppose that that's what happened. Just suppose the Lord gave her strength to stand strong 
and oppose the area that she had fallen in so many times before. Just suppose. Just think about it. God gave her the strength to endure the last and final test and to endure it on the very ground she had failed at many times before. Maybe she, like Samson, asked for strength one more time. Lord, give me strength one more time. You know, Samson had a lot of failures in his life. At the end of his life, he asked the Lord for one more opportunity to avenge the name of the Lord. And Samson's name is written in Hebrews 11. Suppose Susanna asked God for strength one more time to stand true and faithful to death. Let's suppose that is true. Then her name is an addition to the book of Hebrews 11. And she died a hero of faith. You know, we need to see that we need to think about those perspectives at times. We don't know everything about the situation. Might never know, and we, we not our business, just to be frank with you, not my business to know everything about the situation. But folks, I have the faith to believe that God could have done just what I described. I do. How would you like to be the parents and the family who have to bear the shame of the situation? We all know. We all know the tongues waggle, the rumors fly. A very, very, um, that's the word I'm looking for, situation has all the appearances of being very unheroic for the faith. But we don't know. It could, in fact, be an incredible heroic situation. We don't know. How about being the family that has to bear that reproach? Did God again in wanting to make his works manifest did he pass you and I by? 
No, none of us would desire those kind of situations. None of us would. I, I, I'm not, not trying to make any. But let's think about it. You know, God is never done with a situation. It doesn't matter how broken it was before. God is always ready to pick it up and make it new. To repair it. We know there was a lot of brokenness in that situation before. But God is never done. And I'm grateful for that. I'd like to encourage us to be of those who are people of faith. When those situations come that we don't understand, rather than taking the approach of thinking about all the negative and even stating the negative, but even thinking about it, let's be sure. Let's be sure we're not joining those three men Job's friends, and totally missing the heart of the matter. Let's be a people of faith in God. When things don't make sense, when we don't understand, when it seems so useless and so, let's be a people of faith in God. Trust God. I'm going to close with Second Chronicles 16.9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of them, those whose heart is perfect toward him. That's just the first part of the verse. Um, this was a, a rebuke to Saul, I believe. Herein thou hast done foolishly, therefore from henceforth thou should have wars. Uh, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro. God is still looking for a people of faith. You know, faith, not, and, and we, we talked about big things this morning, kind of, some of those huge things. But what about the everyday things of life? You know, the everyday difficulties, that person at work that rubs you the wrong way or that did something to you that offended you or, or that brother in the church who offended you or uh, that wife or that husband that graded you. <laughs> Maybe we need to exercise faith there in the small things, in the little everyday things. You know, if, if God is going to entrust us with the weighty difficult situations that are sometimes necessary for his works to be manifest. It'll start by us being faithful in the day-to-day. Small difficulties. So I want to encourage us, do we pass on a legacy of faith in the day-to-day trials? Do those who observe our lives and observe our responses and observe the way we handle situations, do they see a steadfast faith in a living God? That's the question. Passing on a legacy of faith.
do they see a steadfast faith in the living God? If you're able, let's kneel together and close with prayer. Heavenly Father, again, at the close of this service, we, we come to you. We come to you with thankfulness of heart for your grace, your mercy, your kindness toward us. Even in our failings, Father, you, you help us. You are there for us. We're thankful for that. Father, again, today as we have contemplated uh, whether our life is a legacy of faith, do help us, Father. Help us to, do, to be just that, a legacy of faith in the living God. Grant each one of us that uh, testimony. Develop it in us. Work it in our hearts, Lord. Help us in the small things to exercise faith toward you and to walk with you. Again, Father, thank you for each one who has been present. Ask a blessing on each one. Ask your blessing on those who are not here. And uh, Father, may you may you continue to mature us, mature us in faith, mature us in our responses, that our responses to life could be responses of faith. So thank you, Lord. Thank you again for your love and care for us. We bless you and thank you in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.